The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue in this short series of Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Well, it's at this time of year that I am a bit weary as I venture outside early in the morning on a cold morning, whether it's to fetch the newspaper or to set out the garbage on trash day, I have to be careful not to slip those spots on the pavement that deceptively look like sure footing can sometimes be patches of ice leading to a slip and a fall. And I've had too many encounters of slipping or almost slipping, twisting and straining something as I make my way out onto the cold pavement. Our text warns us from slipping away from the ways of the Lord, falling into the trap of the evil one. And Paul offers us instruction that we might find sure footing, finishing our race, arriving at our destination along a long and weary pilgrimage. I read from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed." Him the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we indeed are threatened. We are vulnerable. We are weak as sheep, as Dr. Rogers mentioned this morning, and you are the good shepherd, the one who leads us, protects us, and lay down his life for us. Thank you for giving us your word of instruction to help us to stand firm in the battle, in the race, in the long pilgrimage. May you give us grace to hear your word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in my junior high school days of football, I can remember our coaches emphasizing the importance of good footwork. In the, my early days of training as a quarterback, I recall that they did not begin with showing us how to throw the ball, but rather how to set our feet, what to do with our footwork as we took the snap, as we handed the ball off to a running back. And even as we set up to throw the ball, you have to begin with the footwork. In fact, that's true of not just the quarterback position, but all the positions, the importance of good footwork. And it applies not just to football, but many other sports as well. Same thing in baseball. When we teach our little ones how to hit the ball, they have to learn the stance and realize that as much as they want to swing the bat with their upper body, most of the power comes from the lower body. And they have to learn how to plant and pivot and turn their hips to swing with power. Footwork is important for the Christian life as well. We need to know how to stand, where to put our feet, how to place ourselves in a position both for defense and for offense. We need to know how to stand our ground, how to take hits, how to handle assault, and how to advance forward in the gospel mission. In our passage tonight, we are given a warning, first about false teaching, even as Paul leads us on to give a preview of what he calls the man of lawlessness. And along the way, we are given guidance in our journey, learning how to find good footing and stand firm in the Lord, against this lawless one. Well, before trying to identify this lawless one, what I'd like to do is explore the characteristics of this false teaching, namely three things. False teaching coming in the the form of deception, rebellion, and lawlessness. After first handling the topic of the judgment day of the Lord in chapter 1, Paul goes on in this chapter to dismiss false teaching. Those who would presume to teach the church that the day of the Lord has already appeared and that they had somehow missed it altogether. And Paul tells his people to ignore spirits or other words or even a letter that pretends to come in their name if its message diverges from what they had heard. Any message that deviated from the gospel that they heard is to be rejected, 
because it is false. Paul urges these believers not to be shaken in their minds, to not be alarmed. And the language here was used in the ancient world to describe sea, sea ships being tossed and battered around by the wind and the waves of a storm. Believers are to be anchored. Anchored in safe harbor in the truth of God's word to guard against all kinds of deception. Those who fail to know the truth or neglect to believe and act upon the truth that they know are vulnerable to vicious lies. I've read historians who insist that had the churches of Germany in the 1930s held a firmer grasp on the gospel, Hitler may have never risen. And the Holocaust very likely would have never happened. Deception is a tool of evildoers masking ill intent. The evildoer, the deceiver, feigns humility while really being ambitious for power. Puts on a friendly face when he is a villain at heart. His words may be smooth, but they go down bitter. He insists that he is giving of himself sacrificially for the good of others, when indeed he is a greedy taker. Deceivers are abusers of trust, abusers of authority, manipulators of innocence and ignorance. And theirs is a false mission, not Christ's mission, promoting themselves and their own agenda. So Paul warns us, let no one deceive you, comparing his life and message and fruit with the word of God. False teaching is deception. It is also rebellion. Paul predicts that there will be a great rebellion prior to the day of the Lord, the time of Christ's return. Like Korah and his followers who were discontent with Moses' leadership and rose up against him, so this man of lawlessness is the one who opposes God and exalts himself so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, Paul says. This is the essence of rebellion, ultimate rebellion, rejection against lawful authority, the ultimate authority which is God himself, refusing to submit to the Lord. This is the one who seeks his own worship, his own glory, rather than rendering worship and glory to the one alone who is worthy. His is a mission, a futile mutiny against the captain of the ship, for the Lord's throne is secure and unthreatened. You and I, however, as believers in this world, we are threatened and the third characteristic of this threat is lawlessness. False teachers use deception. They are secretly plotting rebellion, promising a new order of things, but in truth are usher in a reign of lawlessness, of anarchy, 
and human misery. Such lawlessness is an affront to God and undermines the welfare of people who need law, who need order, who need structure. Without moral and civil restraint, society falls into survival mode. As the strong prey upon the weak, exploiting them and abusing them for their own selfish gain. Lawlessness is a state where sinful desires rule unchecked by the law of God. I mentioned before in this pulpit that my family was taken on a Disney cruise back in November by my parents celebrating their 50th anniversary and and one of the highlights of the cruise were the shows. We had entertainment each night and one particular night was a tribute to all the Disney villains. So we got to see Cruella de Vil and Scar from Lion King and the Queen from Snow White and the Sorceress from Sleeping Beauty all parading across the stage, trumpeting themselves as the most evil of all. And with music and comedy, they brought home their their message of how good triumphs over evil. And that's a good message, right? We like Disney. We like good triumphing over evil. And, of course, they paint the picture that these, these evildoers scheme the way Paul says, with deception and rebellion and lawlessness, bringing their own selfishness, their own quest for power and control and ruthless treatment of others. Such are many of the memorable Disney characters that we've grown to love. Now, as much as we enjoy Disney and their films, and their shows, and their so forth, I had to think about the message a little deeper about what Disney brings across. And I've come to the conclusion, as much as I enjoy Disney, there is a subtle and sometimes not so subtle message that is dangerous, is unhelpful, and ultimately is unbiblical. Because On another night that we were on this cruise, there was a show entitled Believe. And all these characters emphasizing the need to believe. And they had problems and conflict, and they were trying to sing their way to resolve whatever issue it was that uh, they were trying to overcome. And at the end of the night, you have to realize, what is it Disney wants you to believe in? That there's really no substance to it at all, other than simply just believe. Believe in yourself. And that's a common mantra in our modern secular world. And uh, sometimes the message is follow your dreams. Well, dreams are good, and we should dream, and we should believe in certain things, but uh, serial killers have dreams. They believe. They are true to themselves, too. Not every dream is valid. Not every belief in self is healthy because we miss the biblical teaching that our hearts are dark. We need something to believe in that's bigger than ourselves. We need something to dream in that is God-pleasing and God-honoring and not ultimately self-centered. I would venture to say that sadly in many churches across our land, The message is not much better than Disney's belief. The orthodoxy is flimsy. The doctrine is not secure. 
that there's not a clear gospel message. And I don't want to bash and attack other churches. I want to help equip the saints to be careful about what you truly believe in. And are you awake to realize the threat and the danger of this fallen world with an evil one who is determined to deceive, to muster rebellion, to bring forth lawlessness of a scope that surpasses anything Hitler has done? You need, see, we need to believe in something much bigger than ourselves. And we must safeguard against deception, rebellion, and lawlessness by first realizing that it's in here. That in our own hearts of darkness, we are desperately sick and need a Savior. And we need a powerful gospel that has real content, that we believe in something that Christ lived and died and rose again, and intercedes for us, and reigns on high, and will indeed return. We need to hold fast to what we believe. Because if we don't, if our beliefs are false, they become like ice patches, like quicksand, lacking in substance, lacking in footing, a trap that leads to destruction. Well, destruction is the destiny of this mysterious man of lawlessness that Paul introduces only here in his second letter to Thessalonians and to whose identity we turn to now. He's mentioned with four names or titles. He's called the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the son of perdition. You could also, using the participles, you could call him the opposer of God, the one who opposes God, and also the one who exalts himself above God. Now, after studying this matter, I've basically concluded, along with, other, with some of the scholars, who suggest that this man of lawlessness is the same individual that the Apostle John refers to as the Antichrist. And if you remember from John's first letter, uh, his first epistle, he refers to any false teacher who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is Antichrist. In fact, John insists that there has been many Antichrists. There will continue to be many Antichrists in anticipation of one final figure in human history who will ultimately lead rebellion and be defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that Paul was talking about the very same figure. As C.S. Lewis has written somewhere regarding his Chronicles of Narnia series, it's all the same witch, after all. The enemies of God's people have surfaced throughout history. We can... In many ways, we think that the New Testament authors were using various figures of the past to help bring focus to what is the threat, what is the nature of the the enemy against God's people. And one such obvious figure was uh, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who uh, inherited part of the, the the Greek kingdom uh, in the intertestamental era, 
and uh, who defiled the temple of Jerusalem, and uh, whose overthrow and casting out led to uh, the was done by the heroic uh, Mac, the brothers of Maccabees. These figures also manifest themselves in the the Roman emperors, those who invaded and desecrated God's temple in Jerusalem and who promoted themselves as divine, worthy to be worshipped. And we could fast forward to the modern era and even look back upon the, the sad state of the 20th century where tens of millions of people slaughtered by the likes of Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, and others all of whom, of whom testify to the rise of evil men, determined to have their own way, their determination to thumb their nose at God, to suppress his people, to become a law unto themselves. And so with a historic vantage point, I would suggest that we need to exercise humility in assigning a definite label of the man of lawlessness to any particular individual, past, present, or even future, I think it's better to recognize his character. What are the signs? What is the nature of this evildoer? But we need to focus on the one who will bring forth his ultimate defeat. A couple of things about this man of lawlessness. First, is that he is a conspirator with Satan. Verse 9 says is that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power. It says in verse, t- verse 10 that it's with deception, that he will bring deception upon those who are perishing, those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. So with his master, Satan, he leads unbelievers to their doom, deceived and self-deceived, those who rebel against the truth, And the reaction, verse 11, says that God sends a delusion to effectively harden the hearts of unbelievers, not unlike Pharaoh, who refused to embrace the undeniable truth right before his very eyes. And so, numerous people will be swept away, who will fall in in allegiance with this lawless one and Satan. But verse 7 tells us that this man is restrained. And it's a tricky commentator's problem trying to figure out, well, what is restraining the man of lawlessness? Some suggest it's the civil government, even the Roman Empire at that time that, that Paul wrote this letter. I would suggest that whether it's a civil authority of some kind, it's ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king who keeps Satan bound and limited. As Martin Luther once said, Satan is God's devil. And as the book of Job illustrates, Satan, and we could add that this man of lawlessness, can go no further than his leash permits. We worship a sovereign God who is sovereign over all evil and enemies of his people. A second thing to consider about this man of lawlessness is that he is a copycat. In verse 9, it says that that with his coming, his coming will come with power and 
false signs and wonders, once again to deceive many. You recall how the magicians in Pharaoh's court were able to copy the signs and miracles of Moses for a time, helping to harden Pharaoh against God's purposes further. But in the end, the magicians were no match for God's power who overthrew this greatest of earthly powers at that time for God's own glory. John, in his revelation, describes the final enemy of God's people performing counterfeit signs and miracles. He even describes this false trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. He refers to the many-headed beast who is both wounded and healed in a copycat uh, fashion in the likeness of Christ. Once again, intended to deceive, to disguise his rebellious intent. But in the end, we conclude that the man of lawlessness, this tool of Satan, along with the Antichrist, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, whether one or many, are all condemned to destruction. It says very simply in verse 8 that Jesus will kill the lawless one by the breath of his mouth, bringing him to nothing at the day of his return. Jesus, who spoke all of creation into existence by the word of his power, will end all deception, all rebellion by a mere breath. As Luther said in one of his most famous hymns, one little word will fell him. Several weeks ago, on one of our snowy, icy mornings in December, I had an appointment to take my car to Leola for its annual inspection. And on that day, I was grateful for four-wheel drive. Because in my route, I noticed at least four or five accidents along the way, mostly two-wheel drive vehicles that had slipped off the road into the ditch or had a fender bender or were stuck on a modest incline, unable to move forward. And as I thought about the advantages of the four-wheel drive, I thought about how we gain traction in the Christian life. What does it mean to have all-wheel drive in the Christian life? The ability to go forward, the ability to see ahead and to look behind, the ability to both be aware of evil, to be aware of deception, to be aware of our own self-deception, and yet also have a love for truth and righteousness, as Paul says here in verse 12. For me, all-wheel drive is both having a keen awareness of evil and corruption, and yet a magnificent view, a magnificent understanding of God's power and grace, and a love for his truth and righteousness. You see, standing firm in the Lord against the lawless one requires both. We cannot be naive. We need to acknowledge and recognize evil for what it is. And we need to stand against it. And we also need to hold fast to what is true and right and pleasing in God's sight. 
when we recognize sin for what it is, we realize that sin is not just something out there. Sin is what's in here as well. And having a humble, sober, gospel-centered view of oneself and learning to hate it. Learning to hate our own sin and righteousness and learning by God's Spirit to love what is true and good, to love what God loves in truth and righteousness, to cry out with a psalmist in Psalm 119, this great tribute, this love song to God's law, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Growing in the Christian life means hating lawlessness, turning away from rebellion, and not falling into deception but giving oneself to the lawgiver and loving the one who is truth and who is righteousness. So how? How do we take our stand? How do we gain our footing to to find our grounding in grace? Well, in verses 13 through 15, I believe Paul helps us to take our stand as a people who are beloved by God and will one day behold his glory. He begins in verse 13 with thanksgiving to God as he is thankful for God's work, he's thankful for this church, and he refers to them as a people beloved by the Lord. And we are reminded that God's love is not sentimental. It's not just a hallmark card. It says here that we were chosen and saved and sanctified by the Spirit, that that God chose us who needed salvation, who chose us who were dirty and unclean and needed sanctification. God entered in to deliver us, to rescue us, to purify us. And for Paul to call us beloved is to remind us that the same affection and affirmation that God gave to the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It is the same affirmation and affection that comes to every true child of God as we learn to stand before Him, not in our righteousness, not in our goodness, but to stand before Him in the very righteousness of Christ. Embracing the gospel that I am loved and forgiven and accepted because of what Christ has done on my behalf. And it's when we stand firm in the righteousness of Christ, we are able to stand up to temptation, to resist the devil so that he would flee from us, that our feet fitted with the gospel of peace, able to stand, to run, to persevere, to know that we are loved as Christ is loved and stand firm in his name. Paul also says that we have been called through the gospel to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. We who have been foreknown and predestined have been called to be justified by faith and repentance, to be adopted as sons and daughters to be sanctified and ultimately glorified. You see, God is at work making you and I into something 
glorious. He wants us to obtain glory. He wants us to arrive at our destination and become something amazing in his sight, in the likeness of Christ. But he also wants us to behold something far more glorious than that which we will become, to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we need to do now is stand, is stand firm, is to hold fast, is to press forward as we behold his glory, as we advance towards it, awaiting that glorious day of his arrival. This past week, my family enjoyed a milestone, watching our eight-month-old child learn to crawl. For weeks, he's been trying to get those arms and legs to go just right, and he can roll, and he can sit up, and he'll get two or three of those limbs going, but not just right. But then just this week, he figured it out. And he got all cylinders going and all wheels going, and, and he's going to be in four-wheel drive real soon. So we're getting bracing ourselves at home. But very soon, he will be pulling up and beginning to you know, work his way around furniture, and he will begin to stand and begin to first make, make those first steps on assisted. And we will have a lot to teach him about walking and what it means to stand and what it means to stand firm. And I realize as we train our children that the very best place to teach them how to stand is in a place where they are loved and accepted and have opportunities to grow. And that is the family of God. You see, Paul says that we are to stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you have been taught, namely the Word of God that has been passed down through the ages. And so all of our learning, gaining our footing, getting our traction as we learn to walk by faith comes in the midst of community with the people of God. You see, the Christian life was not meant to be alone. We need one another. We are reminded that the devil is like a lion looking for a loner to devour. We need the herd. We need the pack. We need protection. We need to stick together. We need to encourage one another in God's word because we do lose our footing. We do slip from time to time. We wander like sheep. And we need others to help us to stay on the road, to get back up, to keep our eyes fixed heavenward as we wait that great and glorious day when we will meet our Lord Jesus Christ, returning in glory. I think I've mentioned it before in this pulpit, but it's worth repeating, that uh, two nights before my wedding day, as I was walking out on the, the uh, parking lot of a hotel in central Wisconsin, I was going to get in the car and go pick up one of my groomsmen flying in from out of town from the airport. And as I was walking across the parking lot in darkness, I slipped on black ice and severely sprained my ankle and had to go to the 
ER to get an x-ray to make sure it wasn't fractured, and I left the ER with a brace and a set of crutches. Of course, my bride was all worked up over the prospect of me bringing crutches to our wedding. That even as relatively minor as that injury was, had that injury been far worse, nothing would have kept me from my wedding day. I would have hobbled, I would have crawled if I had to, to get to my wedding day. You know, some of us, as we walk the Christian life, are beaten up. We do stumble and fall, and sometimes when we're beaten down by temptations and deceptions and various attacks, some of us enter the kingdom of God limping. Our feet slip. We lose our way for a time, but we help one another to find our footing, to stand, to walk, to hobble if we have to, to even crawl as that day draws near. Christian, as we close tonight, remember the one who loves you, who died for you, who is pierced for your transgressions, who even now is praying for you, interceding on your your behalf and beckons you, who wants you to obtain glory, to behold his glory. May we encourage one another to stand firm, to finish well, until that day when we indeed will behold his amazing glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for encouraging us from your word, reminding us that though we are weak, you are strong, that yours is the victory over sin and death and judgment. And we long for that day when we will be rid of all the evils of this world and we will be in your holy presence, your glorious presence. Sustain us with that vision as we long for that coming day. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.